take your copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the book of Numbers. Today, uh, almost the conclusion of the saga of Balaam. Today we are looking at uh, Numbers chapter 23 and 24. Uh, it's a long text. We're going to read both of these chapters. Uh, and what we will see here, again, is almost the conclusion. Uh, that's because when we get to chapter 25, though uh, Balaam's name is not mentioned, he's very much in the background. Uh, that helps us to understand. Uh, we'll, Lord willing, we'll get there uh, next week. We'll come back to Numbers again. Um, but what we will see as we read uh, is that both Balak and Balaam, uh, in Numbers 23 and 24, wanted Israel to be cursed. Balak wanted Israel to be cursed for himself, and Balaam wanted to be able to curse Israel so that he could enrich himself at Israel's expense, and the Lord overturned both of their desires. We're going to find that today in Numbers chapter 23 and 24, uh, and we will read these, uh, these blessings from this unlikely prophet together. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord together in prayer and seek the blessing of his Holy Spirit on our study. Let's pray. Well, gracious God and Father, we thank you that you have uh, carried along men of old by your Holy Spirit. Even this word from a pagan man is the word from your Holy Spirit. Help us as we read what may be uh, difficult to understand in some places and troubling in others, uh, but help us to understand the promises that you have for your people even today through these words. Thank you for the way that you are always at work fulfilling your promises for your people and help us to rest uh, in your providential care of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now God's word as we find it, Numbers chapters 23 and 24. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height and God met Balaam and Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars and I've offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering, and Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? And Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. 
You shall see only a fraction of them, shall not see them all, then curse them for me from there. And he took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, return to Balak and thus you shall speak. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? Behold a people, as a lioness it raises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down again until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them at all and do not bless them at all. But Balaam answered, Balak, did I not tell you? All that the Lord says, that I must do. And Balak said to Balaam, Come now, I will take you to another place, Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to look for omens. But he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. Like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam. And he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore now flee to your own place. I said I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? 
If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that will I speak. And now behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed, Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And he looked on the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Asher takes you away captive. And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from Katim and shall afflict Asher and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, Draw your attention back to Numbers chapter 23. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 tells us, God is not man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. That didn't stop Balak from trying to get God to do just that. Three separate attempts from three separate vantage points, and Balak and his accomplice each time tried to get the God of heaven to act like the fickle men of this world. They tried to get him to undo what he had already done, to unsay what he had already said. And each time the Lord sends another word, each time a bit clearer, declaring without question that he is not a God who can be manipulated. He is not man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? This is a very long uh, and pretty complicated passage. We could pretty easily get lost trying to track down all of the little details in these chapters, and so today we're not going to try to do that. Instead, I, I do want to help you see and focus on several of these unbreakable promises that God makes to his people, the unchangeable blessings that he has declared through this uh, man who became a prophet, three blessings for his people. The first is a promise of overflowing abundance, chapter 23, verses 9 and 10. From the tops of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. But verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? 
That's the main focus of of this first oracle of Balaam. It is the abundance of God's people. And there's a fitting irony here in contrast uh, to what you remember began this whole saga of Balak and Balaam in the first place. You remember that when Israel came up through the land of Moab and settled there along the banks of the Jordan, Balak looked out over Israel and he said, there are too many for me. There are simply too many Israelites. He said that they covered the face of the earth. That's the same phrase that the book of Exodus used to describe the plague of locusts that God sent into Egypt against Pharaoh. And indeed they do. When locusts descend, they cover everything. Everywhere you look, all you can see is crawling, marching, devouring death. And now in his first oracle, Balaam says, actually, Balak was right. The Israelites do cover the face of the earth, but not like a plague of locusts, more like a dust cloud like a sandstorm blowing in from the desert to the east, coating every surface with fine silt, like the trip you take to Cape Cod and you come home and you have to shake out over and over again every beach chair and bathing suit because somehow the sand gets into more places than you imagined it could go. That's what he's telling us here. How could you count them, says Balaam, even if you tried? They're everywhere. They're like the dust of the earth. And then, uh, as they settle into the land that the Lord is giving them, Balaam says, actually, if you think they're abundant now, just wait and see what the Lord will do. They're going to grow even more abundant still. Chapter 24, verses 5 to 7. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. The water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. It's a testimony to the, the miraculous sustaining power of the Lord who has been leading them all their lives long. This weekend, maybe... Uh, Like in many of your homes, in our home, we began to decorate for Christmas. My wife began to decorate for Christmas. I I did almost nothing. Uh, But part of that decoration involved uh, taking slices of fresh, juicy oranges and putting them on a drying rack and then placing them out in the breezeway next to the wood stove. And there, in the heat, little by little, they, they lose their moisture and their suppleness. They get dehydrated. They dry out. They become something that you can hang on a tree instead of something you can feed to your family. And Israel thought that's what was happening to them in the desert. They thought the Lord was turning them into fruit leather. How many times did we hear them complain to Moses, there's no water out here, Moses. You brought us out here to die. We're going to be dry and cracked and devoid of life. And yet the Lord brings them in, and we find through Balaam that even through all their wilderness wanderings, they emerge from the desert, he says, like aloes planted by Yahweh, like gardens beside a river, like twin buckets. You know how they they sling them over a, a, a piece of wood, and they hang on the farmer's shoulder, and with each step, the buckets are splashing and sloshing over the sides because the containers are simply too small to hold all the abundance that the Lord is giving them. Don't miss all of the flourishing and, and moisture imagery here and water imagery in this dry and arid wasteland. 
The Lord is saying he's giving his people overflowing abundance. It's the first of the promises that he pronounces to them. You don't have to search very hard to find the roots of this promise uh, back in God's promises to the patriarchs. Genesis chapter 15, you remember that, that famous passage. The Lord takes Abraham outside his tent on a cloudless night and he dares him to look at the stars and try to count them as though he could. And then he promises, so shall your offspring be. Like the stars of the heavens, he says. Elsewhere, he says, like the sand that covers the seashore, they'll be innumerable, they'll be abundant, they'll be overflowing with growth. And that's what Balaam is pronouncing from the tops of the mountains over Israel. He's reminding them that God has been true to his promises. He never makes a covenant that he doesn't intend to keep. And so the Lord made promises to Abraham that only he could bring about. Life from the womb of Sarah who was barren. He made promises to Israel that only he could keep. Water from the rock in the wilderness. He continues to make that same promise to his church today. The promise of abundance that could only come from him. Be careful here, you know. There are these modern preachers who take all this language of abundance from the Old Testament covenants and they drag and drop it right into the individual lives of every individual New Testament believer. And they say that if you are following the Lord faithfully, well, then he is duty-bound to give you all the abundance that you can handle and then some more. If you're faithfully following the Lord, he's got to give you financial security and marital bliss and, and a house full of growing, godly Christian children, too. It's true that the Lord does sometimes give those things to his people. But when he does, and, and if he does, they're beside the point of the kind of abundance that he promises us. The point of the promise of God's abundance, when we apply it through the New Testament church, is that it's meant to be a spiritual and corporate abundance. It is a spiritual abundance because Jesus says that all those who trust in him will receive the overflowing waters of eternal life that only the Holy Spirit can supply. And then it becomes a corporate blessing because it applies to the church as a whole the church as a body, the church as a kingdom. Don't forget that Jesus said that even though his church, his kingdom would begin small like a mustard seed, it would grow to fill the earth. An abundance that could not be contained. It would become a haven for every uh, people and tribe and tongue and nation. As you read the accounts of all of that in the New Testament, you can see the way the Lord was doing that, giving growth that only he could. You read the accounts in Acts and you see that very often the story of the early church in the first centuries looked a lot like the story of Egypt uh, or Israel tucked away inside of Egypt. That the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And so we're told in the book of Acts several times, the Lord added day by day to the number of those who were being saved. He increased their number. There was persecution on account of the gospel and yet he grew them and he multiplied them. And that's what he does. He gives life out of a barren womb. He gives water from a rock. He gives abundance to his church when we look around and say, there's no chance that abundance could come out of this. I realize that sometimes, especially in New England, we look around and we get discouraged. 
And we say, wow, the, uh, the Christian church is, is really uh, on the outsides of the cultural power of our day. It's really much smaller than we thought it should have been by now. We've got this great thing called the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and why don't more people want to hear about it? And we look around at Christianity, especially in a place like New England, and we can convince ourselves on our worst days that it's smaller than it ought to be. Then again, there are times when the Lord gives us, as it were, a view from the tops of the mountains. He encourages us with faithful ministries that we learn about that we didn't even know existed right around the corner. We learn about church growth and things happening in Brazilian Portuguese churches over in Framingham and Marlborough that maybe we'd never considered before. We learn about what the Lord is doing through Chinese Bible churches down in Boston. Or maybe you commit to pray for the persecuted church and suddenly your eyes are open to the fact that there are believers all over the world who are part of this amazing abundance that the Lord is giving to his people. There are believers in places like Pakistan, in Mexico, in in Zaire and Japan, there are people who live in dangerous places where the more they are oppressed, the more they multiply. And we look at it and say, this is something that only God could do. But he does it. And he does it because he's a God who always keeps his promises. He gives the promise of abundance to his people. Uh, secondly, he promises the strength of his presence strength of his presence. This is the focus of Balaam's second oracle. Uh, it's a direct answer to Balak's plan for the Israelites. Of course, they came up and Balaam, uh, Balak said, you know, they're too many for me. They're too numerous. They cover the face of the earth. But if I can find someone strong enough to curse them, maybe I can get the upper hand. And the second oracle says, not a chance. It, it can't happen. Chapter 23, verses 20 to 23. The Lord says uh, through this man, Balaam, Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. And the shout of a king is among them. God brings them up out of Egypt. It is for them like the horns of the wild ox, for there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? In those verses, it is though the Lord is systematically shutting the doors on every last hope that Balak had of gaining the upper hand over Israel. He says there is no spiritual weapon that can prevail against them. Even the sorcerer says there is no divination, no enchantment against Israel. There is no physical army that can stand before them. Because if, if mighty Egypt couldn't conquer Israel, then little old Moab doesn't have much of a chance. And in fact, I think what's most striking about this oracle is that there's not even an internal flaw in Israel that can be twisted in order to direct the fate of Israel in the wrong direction. Verse 21 says, The Lord has not beheld misfortune in Jacob. He has not seen trouble in Israel. Why is that surprising? Well, it's surprising because we've just read 23, 24 chapters of Numbers. And we have seen plenty of trouble in Jacob. 
We've seen fighting and we've seen failure and complaining and plague. And as Israel wandered through the wilderness on their way to Canaan, more often than not, they have been their own worst enemy. There's no reason to to call sorcerers. Just give them enough enough discomfort, excuse me, and they'll curse themselves. In fact, that's what chapter 25 is all about, and Lord willing, we'll get there next week. But here, the point of Balaam's oracle here is that even with all that they've encountered... And everything they've done and said on their way to Canaan, the Lord their God has never left his people. Nor will he do so in the future. The message is that there is no sin or circumstance or spiritual opponent strong enough to make the Lord abandon his covenant people. It is God's presence with them that gives them security against everything they face. If you're one of those people that likes to, to analyze things, you, you might be interested to know that, that the structure of these verses really makes God's presence the central idea of the second oracle. The second oracle is composed of 22 lines of parallel Hebrew poetry, 11 couplets, 11 pairs. And as it often is in most Hebrew poetry, the main idea is smack in the middle. And here, smack in the middle, is the second half of verse 21. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. So that is what protects God's people. It isn't their piety, or their fortune, or their luck, or their prowess with military machinery. It's the strength of God's presence. The God of Israel is in the center of his camp. Just like he's in the center of this oracle, he's in the center of the camp geographically and literally, but also spiritually with his people. Surrounded by the nations, the tribes of Israel, he's in their midst. And he's the one fighting their battles. He is the one delivering them from their sin and every enemy they come across. The Lord is with his people to give them strength. As wonderful as that blessing is for Israel, we also realize that the fullness of God's presence comes only with the coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We remember, of course, that in the Gospel of John, it says that he came and dwelt among us. The God whom no one has seen the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, and he, and he took on flesh, and he dwelt among us. He was here. And then as he was about to leave those disciples who got to know him and got to walk with him for three years, he says, actually, it's going to be better if I leave. Because when I leave, I will send another helper, and he will be with you forever. And so after he died and after he was raised again and before he ascended to the Father, he sent out his disciples with this promise. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's nothing that can separate me from you. I will always be with you, he tells his church. Have you ever stopped to consider the fact that what the Israelites had locally, what they had geographically, You have spiritually, you have perpetually, you have a presence that cannot be revoked. Don't get me wrong, the the Lord here 
says that he's in the midst of his people, but, but he is also omnipresent, right? He is everywhere. There's nowhere we can flee to get away from him. It's not as though he's only in this place during the Old Testament and not in other places. In fact, that was the mistake that Balak made. Maybe if we walk over there, God won't see what we're doing. We can bless Israel from over there, and it never works. The Lord is not limited by our conception of location. He's not, he's not uh, bounded by latitude and longitude. He, he's not limited the way the pagans imagined their own gods were limited. Nevertheless, in the days of the Old Covenant, God did promise to put his name and his presence in a particular place. Remember that it was Jerusalem, eventually, where the Lord said, I will put my name there, in that location. You remember that it's here inside of the woven walls of the tabernacle that God says, I will be with my people. I will meet with you there. Well, now the Lord is with us in even greater measure. The New Testament tells us that now the gathered church is the spiritual temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, even individual believers are tabernacles for God's presence. Now, of course, again, in the days of the wilderness, the Holy Spirit was at work with God's people. He was giving them faith in the Christ who was to come, just like he gives us faith in the Christ who has come. There is no faith apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was at work in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is, is at work now in these last days of the New Testament. It's true that he dwelt among them in their presence, but now the Holy Spirit dwells, the New Testament tells us, within us. He dwells not just with us, but within us. He strengthens us. He, he fills each and every believer to fight for us and to protect us by his presence. Let me ask those of you who have been walking with the Lord for some time now. You've got 20 years. You've got 40 years. You've got 50, 60 years of Christian pilgrimage under your belt. What is it in all that time that has kept you from walking away from the faith you once proclaimed? What is it? Where does the strength not to turn aside come from? Does it come from you? Where have you found the strength to hold on through seasons of dryness? Long nights of despair or depression? How have you kept hoping in the Lord even when the same old sins and temptations keep on haunting you time and time again? How have you kept from turning aside from the faith when you've seen acquaintances and friends, people that you once thought were spiritual giants, and you watched them do exactly that? What has kept you? Has it been your strength, your hold upon the Lord Jesus Christ that is kept you from becoming apostate? Or has it been his hold on you? Has it been his strength in your life? Has it been the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit filling you with faith when you were certain that you should have run out of your own by now? Now what has kept you is the same thing that keeps every believer. It's the promise that our Savior will never leave you or never forsake you. It's the fulfillment of the same blessing that Balaam was talking about here, in even greater measure, that behold, the Lord is with you, even to the end of the age.
So there are promises for God's people here. There's the promise of abundance. And there's the strength of his presence. Finally, there's the promise of God's coming king. As you look through these oracles, you'll notice that there's, there's king and kingdom language sort of sprinkled everywhere, but it really rises to a crescendo in these two oracles in chapter 24. That itself, that detail is significant because it's in chapter 24 that Balaam explicitly tells us, I'm telling you about something that's going to happen a long time from now. In chapter 23, largely he's looking at Israel and proclaiming what already is. God has blessed them. He is bringing them out of Egypt. He is settling them into the land. There's nothing you can do about it. But in chapter 24, he reaches far into the future and he tells us, this is what God is going to do. We can't unpack it completely, but in these last two oracles, Balaam becomes something of an unintended prophet of the Lord. You remember what happened with Israel's first king, Saul, the son of Kish, about 300-odd years after Balaam. The spirit rushed upon him. He was, in some sense, uh, uncontrolled and uncontrollable, and he was numbered among the prophets. People watched him, and he didn't know what was going on, couldn't tell what he was doing, and there he was, and they started to say, is, is Saul even among the prophets? We would look at Balaam here and say, is Balaam uh, even among the prophets? Chapter 24, verse 4, Balaam speaks of falling down with his eyes uncovered. If you have the King James there, it says falling into a trance. That might actually be a better description. Something like what happened with Saul is happening with Balaam. It seems to be almost sort of a spiritual possession, some sort of ecstatic utterance where he doesn't really have control over it, but the Lord is speaking directly through this man, through the mouth of Balaam. And if that's a little too weird for your Presbyterian sensibilities, that's okay. It doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It seems to be what the text tells us, even if we look at it and we scratch our heads. Now, however it did happen, the message that we find here is about future dominion through a king who's going to reign over Israel. Take a look at the first reference there in verse 7. Verse 7, chapter 24, we read that his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Actually, most conservative scholars agree that this is a pretty straightforward prophecy about King Saul, the son of Kish. It was Saul who was the one who defeated King Agag of the Amalekites. And despite all of his flaws, it was under the reign of King Saul that Israel first began to be a military machine to subdue these ancient enemies that were still hanging around Canaan. So there will be a king later. But then things get interesting around verse 17, in this final oracle. Verse 17, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come up out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. Now, whatever may be, obscure in those few verses, the basic shape of this prediction is crystal clear. The Lord is going to send a king to Israel. 
Calls him on the one hand a star, but also on the other hand a scepter. That's the ruler's staff. He's one who wields the power of leadership over Israel. He is a valiant representative. He's one who the text says exercises dominion. Most importantly, for King Balak of Moab, he's one who's going to put an end to the struggle between Israel and her ancient enemies. Now, if we take all of that into consideration and we start to flip through the pages of Israel's history looking for a king that will fit the bill, there are a few important people that stand out. King David is is the most likely candidate. King David is the one, you can read about his victories over Edom and Moab in 2 Samuel chapter 8. When you do, you'll find that the Moabites, he he measured out with a line. He made them all lay down on the ground, and he measured them out, and in every two measurements he killed, and the third measurement he made servants. The Edomites, that other ancient uh, people, uh, he struck down in the Valley of Salt. He made their survivors into slaves of Israel as well. And the story in, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, it ends talking about those conquests by saying, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So as we look for a king who sounds like the one Balaam's talking about, it sounds like maybe David's the one. He does valiantly. He has dominion. He crushes the heads of the oppressors of God's people. There are, though, two big reasons why David can't be the king of Numbers chapter 24. The first reason is that David never crushed Moab and Edom. He dealt them a heavy blow, but he didn't eradicate them. He he didn't get rid of the animosity between these nations. In fact, as as you read throughout the other pages of Israel's history, you find that there continue to be skirmishes between Israel and her neighbors, and even as Israel herself is punished by the Lord for idolatry, it's Edom and Moab who are standing on the sidelines gloating as the Babylonians tear Jerusalem down to its foundations. So, uh, reason one, David never dealt a death blow to Moab and Edom. And that's why, reason two, the later prophets are still looking for a king like David who will come and finish the job that David started. You're going to have to, uh, for the sake of time today, you're going to have to trust me on this. Maybe you'll have to go back and do some study by yourself later and and do a bit of homework with a good study Bible and and start to look at some of these passages. But as you do, as you read throughout uh, the Old Testament prophets, you will find text after text and oracle after oracle and prediction after prediction of one who will come like David, but one who will be greater than David ever actually was. Among all of those texts, probably most famously, is Isaiah chapter 11. You recognize Isaiah chapter 11 because it's one of those passages that we read or you read year after year in our Advent readings at Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 11 is the one who speaks of the shoot who will come forth from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots. That is one who will come after who was yet before a branch from his roots. It says this stump out of the the shoot, out of the stump of Jesse, he's the one who will bear fruit. It's he, says Isaiah, who will judge the poor in righteousness. It is he, says Isaiah, who will gird his loins with faithfulness. It is he who will make the lion lie down with the lamb. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. 
Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And that's normally where we close our Bibles on Christmas. But the text keeps going. It keeps going, and it actually continues to speak of the final conquest of Edom and Moab. It goes on to speak of the destruction of the Philistines and the Ammonites. In fact, it goes on to describe a highway from Assyria that will bring back all the the ransomed remnant of God's chosen people. I realize that those are a lot of threads to hold on to on a Sunday morning, and I also realize that if you're one of these uh, type A redeemerites who likes to get all the cross-references in your notes, you're, you're just trying to keep up. But if you missed any of those details, don't worry, because the, the shape of all of this, this, this unanswered prophecy comes into the picture round about seven centuries after Isaiah. Round about 14 centuries after Balaam. It was then that the Jews are languishing under the thumb of one more foreign occupier after a long list of foreign occupiers. And it's then that the people of God are still wondering if the Lord is really with them. If all of his old promises about abundance and strength are still applicable for them as a people. It's about that time that a group of pagan sorcerers, we call them magi if we're trying to be inclusive, or or astrologers maybe. A group of pagan astrologers comes and and they show up on the doorstep of a half-Edomite king by the name of Herod the Great. And they say to him, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? Well, how do you know there's been a king of the Jews? And they say, well, we we saw his star, of course, when it rose in the east. You know, somewhere over there by the mountains of Aram in the eastern lands. We saw his star. We've been waiting for it, and we've come to worship him. Well, even after he came and and even after he lived and he died and he rose again for the salvation of his people, even then those who knew him best are still wondering. Acts chapter 1, they were wondering if now is the time to restore the kingdom to Israel. They had in mind the destruction of Moab and Edom and the Ammonites and all of those ancient foes. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, you don't really understand these promises yet. You don't understand what the Lord has been telling you he was going to do, but you will understand. You'll understand when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He says you'll understand when the strength of God dwells within you, and they will understand what kind of a king then he came to be. Not the king who conquers with sword and the spear, not a king who rules over a a plot of land between uh, lines of latitude and longitude. He's the king who came to conquer by surrendering himself. He's the one who came to crush the head of the serpent. He's the Lord of his people over all the earth, not just in one tiny little place. The question is, what is the takeaway from all of this? Ancient prophecies from some eastern pagan, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is that on the mountains overlooking the Jordan River, King Balak tried to get the God of heaven, to change his mind. He tried to get the Lord God Almighty to abandon his people. He tried to get the God of covenant, steadfast love to break his promises. 
14 centuries later, the Lord still had not broken his promises. And 20 centuries after that, the Lord still will not break his promises. He has spoken, and, and will he not do it? Has he promised, and will he not fulfill it? The Lord has, has brought his promises to fulfillment in the son that he said he would bring into the world, the star and the scepter, the ruler of Jacob, the king of Israel. He's promised abundance to his people, spiritual abundance, growth of his church. He's promised to be with you for strength and for forgiveness. And he's promised to send a king who would fulfill these promises forever. And the Lord has kept these promises through Jesus Christ, his son. And you can trust that he'll always keep them, even to the very end of the age. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you that uh, you are able to speak through whom you desire. And you speak blessing that cannot be overturned. Thank you for your word this morning, and we pray that we might believe it. Far more, we pray that we would trust in the king who you sent to have dominion over all the earth. We pray that we would long for that final day when he will return, when all the swords will be turned into plowshares, and the lion indeed will lie down with the lamb. Help us to long for that day of peace, when war will be no more, when all our sins will have been washed away, and we will see you and behold you and dwell in your presence forever, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.